Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by Gage. Gage is a free and open source test automation tool by ThoughtWorks with a goal of taking the pain out of test automation for acceptance tests. To help with this, Gage supports specifications and markdown, which are easy to read and easy to write. Reusable specifications to simplify your code, which makes refactoring easier and less code means less time maintaining your code. And finally, integration. Use Gage with your favorite tools and IDEs in the ecosystem of your choice, like Selenium and Sahi Pro, CI and CD tools like GoCD, Jenkins, Travis, and IDE support for Visual Studio, VS Code, IntelliJ, and more. Head to gage.org slash jsparty to learn more and give it a try. Once again, gage.org slash jsparty. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. I'm Tim Smith, and today we've got a very special episode for you. K-Ball and Nick were on location at Node Plus JS Interactive in Vancouver. They had the chance to talk with Lori Voss, co-founder and COO of NPM Inc. They chat about his talk, NPM and the Future of JavaScript, together with some of the fascinating data that NPM has, JavaScript frameworks, and how the definition of the fundamentals of the web seems to be constantly changing. Okay, K-Ball here at Node.js Interactive one more time. I'm here with Nick Nisi. Hello. And we are talking to Lori Voss, co-founder and COO of NPM. Hello. How's it going, Lori? Pretty good. It's a great conference so far. Yeah, we're excited to, to have you with us. So you gave a talk yesterday afternoon. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Uh, sure. It was called um, NPM and the Future of JavaScript, uh, which is a pretty lazy title on my part because I realized a couple months ago that basically I'm always talking about NPM and the future of JavaScript. <laughs> no matter what it is that I'm specifically talking about, it always involves NPM and stuff that's going to happen. Um, uh, but specifically what I was talking about in this case was um, I was trying to help people make technical choices in 2019 um, by giving them some results from an analysis of the huge pile of data that NPM has available to us about what people who write JavaScript are up to. Um, the two sources of data that we used were you know, basic registry stats. We can tell if stuff people are downloading more stuff or less stuff on a per package basis. Um, and we also ran a really big survey of 16,000 NPM users um, and you know, asked them directly, so what are you doing? Um, and so the purpose of the talk is to address um, what turns out to be a sort of surprising pervasive problem in JavaScript, which is that people are doing what they're doing without a good sense of whether or not it's a best practice. People do stuff and they, you know, they see a lot of articles about it, but they don't genuinely know if they've just got caught up in a fad or if this is really something that everybody does. And we know because we have data. So I, it's sort of, you know, it behooves us to help you know whether or not like, no, you just read one article on Hacker News and nobody actually does that. Or like, no, everybody does actually use this thing. That's a really interesting point. So are there, uh surprising examples of 
things that people actually are all using? There are tons of surprising examples of things that everybody is using. I think the one that's been getting um, the most sort of gasps of surprise was uh, the TypeScript stat, which is we asked people, um, you know, are you using TypeScript? And 46% of people said yes. 46% of NPM users is well over 4 million people, so that's a surprising usage base wow. for TypeScript. Um, we were not expecting the result, and as a result, the question was kind of vague. Using TypeScript, it could mean that you are using some modules that are written in TypeScript. It could mean that you are writing TypeScript. It could mean that someone in your team is writing TypeScript and you have to use it, but you hate it. Um, so when we run the survey again, uh, which will be uh, in a month or two from now, um, we're going to be asking that question in a lot more detail. But at the moment, 46%, that's a lot. That's like, you can't ignore that. That's not just, you know, that's not just the Microsoft crowd. That's a, that's a whole bunch of people. That is shocking. Yeah. The other, I think the other, it's not surprising except in its magnitude is the adoption of React. React is being used by 60% of people who use NPM. And no framework has ever got that big before. No framework has got that level of adoption before. The biggest framework prior to that was um, Angular, uh, which peaked at somewhere between half and two-thirds of that usage. Um, Angular is a huge framework, but nowhere near as popular as React is now. And part of that is that React isn't a framework. React is one part of a larger framework, right? It's a solution to web components that st share state. Um, and you can use them to build web apps, but you can also use them to build mobile apps, and you can also use them to build desktop apps. Um, and I think that's part of why React is seeing such adoption, because people who are not working in the web space at all, they're just working in JavaScript, per se, um, uh, are adopting React. And that's, that's fueling React, because it's got, you know, it has all of these bug fixes, and it has all of this you know, extra quality that comes from a larger user base that's being pushed back into the web stack, even though there are more people using it than that. So that's a really interesting mechanism there. They're, that decoupling, um, which is unique in the web frameworks that I'm uh, familiar with, has been tremendously successful for them. That is really neat. Um, one of the things I've been seeing is there's also there's a lot of crosstalk across frameworks in a way that there didn't necessarily used to be. Mm -hmm. uh, Angular, React, Vue, Dojo, they've all kind of consolidated down to a bunch of best practices, and then mm -hmm. they have kind of unique takes on those. I mean, React Router, which is the most popular router framework um, for, for React applications, it is, in fact, Ember's router. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, it's, which is great for the web. Yeah. They're, they're actually, you know, essentially lots of different experiments going on, but then when something proves out, it gets quickly cross-pollinated across all these different things. Yes, and it happens a lot faster in the web than anywhere else, I think. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is um, JavaScript's sort of famous love it or hate it predilection for, for many small modules, right? As soon as something, you know, it's not that when you see a pattern in another framework, you can, you know, start rewriting your framework to start using that. You can just pull in that package and be done, right? You can, you can just use it yeah. um, without having to, to, to copy or do a whole bunch of work. That is interesting. I'm curious, for the survey that you did of NPM users, what is the distribution of sort of, or how do you control for predilection to respond to surveys? You know, things like enterprise -y folks versus not and, and other factors that may play in there. Um, so our website gets uh, 10 million hits every 90 days and we ran the survey for 90 days. So we're pretty sure that 10 million people saw the survey. I'm a data nerd, so I wrote like a 5,000 word blog post about the methodology and all the things that are wrong with the methodology. Um, Love it. The, 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 the ultimate answer is you can't, but 
the saving grace there is the survey is definitely biased towards people who would answer surveys, but there's no reason to believe that people who are biased towards answering surveys would be particularly in one camp or another, right? There's no reason why React users are more likely to answer a survey than an Angular user. There's no more, there's, I cannot think of a reason that an enterprise user would be more likely to answer a survey than a user who's in full-time education. Like, there's definitely some bias there, but the bias is towards pe is universally across all groups towards people who have some free time this afternoon. <laughs> right. The survey is anonymous. Um, the survey is optionally nominated. Um, one of the one of the things that we wanted to do when we were doing the survey is like share the data with everybody. But unfortunately, as a result of not strictly saying this should be anonymous, people put a ton of really important personal information into their survey responses. Mm. Um, so it made it very hard to to um, put out into the world. We had to put out aggregate results only um, because people kept typing their email addresses and like snippets of code. Uh, into our survey boxes. <laughs> like, no, we can't give that away. That's not safe. Yeah. So what, what does the survey tell you about uh, the language itself? Um, what about the language? It tells us all sorts of things about... Yeah, like, um, does it tell you anything about... Uh, I probably took it, but I can't remember mm -hmm. actually taking it. Uh, but does, does, it, um, does it tell you about people maybe using newer features of the language, or uh, it probably tells you a lot about that mixed with, with data about what's actually being downloaded from NPM probably tells you what people are using in terms of like Babel and, mm -hmm. and other things. So does it, does it glean information about like specific features of the language that are very popular or uh, anything like that? We, um, there's another foundation, there's another survey, uh, the name of which I have forgotten, um, which focuses on the specific features of JavaScript. Mm -hmm. um, as the NPM survey, we are more interested in what packages you're using. We're at sort of a slightly higher level of abstraction. Yeah. Um, so we ask about what tooling you use. We, ask, uh, we asked about TypeScript, we asked about Babel. Uh, I think it is 69% of people are using some kind of transpiler, and within that group, 80% of them are using Babel. Mm. Um, Babel is tremendously popular. Um, so that's a really interesting uh, facet because it tells you that most people are not just writing raw JavaScript. Um, yes, uh, sort of the, the sort of baseline answer to the survey question about tooling, um, you know, the, the sort of 100% bar answer was like, we hate tooling. We would like there to be less of it. Why do we have to do all of this configuration? Why do we have to do all of this setup? Why is JavaScript such a pain in the ass <laughs> to use in 2018? And the base answer is, is uh, you know, it's our fault, right? Like NPM and Node produced this gigantic pile of now 808,000 libraries in NPM. And I remember in 2014 thinking, we are going to have to come up with a story for the front-end people. Like, they're going to have to, like, this transpilation thing, this seems like it's a real pain in the ass. No one was going to, no going to do that. And there's all these web developers. There's these great libraries. We should really make them available to web developers. And it turns out NPM didn't have to do anything. Everybody just figured it out on their own. Um, you know, and Webpack and Babel came along, and now everybody who's doing web development is using NPM to do it. Um, but there's a fundamental point of friction there, which is that all of these libraries were written in CommonJS, which is the module format for Node. And CommonJS does not work in browsers. It was not designed for browsers. Even if browsers supported it tomorrow, it would be a bad idea because it's synchronous. Like, mm -hmm. it's not designed to work in a browser environment at all. Um, and so everybody has to transform JavaScript from one form of JavaScript to another form of JavaScript for the dominant use case, right? Like, 
the dominant use case of NPM is I use a bunch of NPM modules on the web, and that is the least convenient use case right now. And that's a huge problem for, um, for JavaScript in general, right? We've got one of the strengths of JavaScript historically has been that it's easy to get going. It's easy to learn. There's not a bunch of ceremony. You don't have to do a bunch of compilation. And we've sort of accidentally backed ourselves into this corner where that's not true anymore. Um, and I think one of the things that the um, popularity of TypeScript is showing is that if that's true, if to do JavaScript on the web, you have to have a bunch of tooling and ceremony anyway, there's no reason that you would stick with vanilla JavaScript at all. You can adopt TypeScript, but now uh, WASM has happened, WebAssembly, um, which allows you to compile any language into uh, you know, basically JavaScript bytecode that can run in the browser. Mm -hmm. And if you, were a, you know, if you were a C++ or a Java or a Rust developer today, and you're like, well, I could learn JavaScript, or I could just compile my language down into JavaScript and use it directly with all of the NPM modules working just fine, why would I do that? Why would I bother? So um, this is not a problem for NPM. Whether or not people continue to use JavaScript or they use um, you know, WASM compiled modules from other languages, they're all going to, you know, the, the gravity well of these 800,000 libraries is going to keep people putting them into the existing pool of libraries so that they can use all of them at once. Mm -hmm. Um, but it is a problem for JavaScript, right? It is a, it, JavaScript has always been the default language of the web. Um, WebAssembly creates a universe where that doesn't have to be true. And if JavaScript doesn't, you know, basically get its act together, um, it, list, it, it risks losing this, this, you know, really privileged place it has right now as the default language of the web. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it is because the new features come out and they're very helpful. Like a, a lot of it is syntactic sugar, but it just makes us more expressive with what we're trying to write. Mm -hmm. But when it comes out and it gets finalized, and even if you're, you're waiting until stage four and uh, things that are for sure going to be in the next version of the language, uh, a lot of, on the web at least, a lot of us still have to support older browsers or enterprise versions of more modern browsers that won't have those features for maybe mm -hmm. another year or two. Absolutely. One, so of, one of the things that's, um, that a couple of people have been talking to us about recently is one of the things that NPM has data about um, is uh, what versions, what JavaScript features are supported on the platforms people actually are deploying to. Hmm. We know what versions of Node you're using, we know what versions of Babel you're using, we know what versions of everything that you're using. Um, so a lot of people, um, this is something Babel has tried to address recently by um, Babel preset env. Yep. Um, they've tried to, they've basically said too many people were compiling down to too old a version of JavaScript. You didn't need to do that. Use Babel preset env and we will make sure that you are using, you know, a good medium of, of new features versus compatibility. Um, NPM should be doing more on that front. We have more data than anybody else about what people are using. We should be able to indicate to authors and users, um, you know, only 2% of, of users can't use this feature. It's safe. Or, you know, or if 2% is too big for you, it's not safe. But like we have, we can give ambient information and we can sort of, without having to do any kind of, you know, hard and fast, you can't publish that feature anymore stuff, which is totally contrary to our ethos. We can just nudge people towards, you can use this now. It's safe. We promise. We've got the data. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com slash changelog. Move fast and fix things like we do here at Changelog. Catch your errors before your users do with Rollbar. If you're not using Rollbar yet or you haven't tried it yet, they have a special offer for you. Go to rollbar.com slash changelog. 
sign up and integrate Rollbar to get $100 to donate to open source projects via Open Collective. Once again, rollbar.com slash changelog. And without getting too deep into uh, a debate about the module syntax, uh, do you see that as as a way to to smooth things out going forward for the web? Uh, as maybe more ES module support comes to modules that that are published to npm. It, I mean, it's not even out yet, but like as yeah. that goes forward. My sort of ideal state. I don't think we'll ever get rid of transpilation um, in general. Um, a, because people will always want features that aren't quite there yet, mm -hmm. and B, um, transpilation often provides um, uh, efficiency, right? You know, bundling is, is an efficiency gain that is separate to, um, it's uh, over and above just, um, you know, being able to use it at all. Mm -hmm. You know, bundling provides efficiency gains that, that are always going to be true. It's always going to be faster that way because the web is the web. So my ideal state would be that transpilation and bundling were an optional step. I would like a newbie or somebody who doesn't care too much about performance, they're just writing an internal app or a demo or something to be able to write just JavaScript, have import statements work both in Node and on the browser mm -hmm. and be done with it, and then think about transpilation and bundling as a thing that they can do later if they want to, if it matters to them. That would, that would be more accessible and, and better for the language. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure that, I think folks have looked at this, once you adopt a build step, it's extremely rare that you're going to go back. Yeah. And there are real benefits to having that level of machine processing and optimization and various other things in there. But it puts a barrier in place. And if we can just get rid of the barrier piece and say, this is, this is how you go from dev mode to pro mode. Right. You know? The history of technology in general is always like, whatever is the easiest to get started with wins over and above any other features that it's got. Right. That's how PHP became the dominant language of the web for a very long time. People were like, oh, this thing is clown shoes and it's not for serious programmers. And I'm like, yes, but I can get somebody started on a PHP application in 10 minutes. And I cannot do that with Java. And therefore, PHP became a gigantically installed language. Um, we are seeing um, one of the uh, drags on React's growth recently has been people uh, adopting Vue instead, because Vue has many of the benefits of React, but you don't have to do all of this, uh, you don't have to make all of these choices up front before yep. you're really ready to make these choices. Vue's just like, we've figured it out. Do a Vue app, and you can extend it later if you want to, but the defaults work fine. Um, and that's a great story, right? Like, why did MySQL eat Postgres's lunch? It's because MySQL was easy to install on Windows. Mm. And like, like over and over and over, like, like technology is littered with, if you make it accessible to newbies, your technology will win. And transpilation creates a barrier that makes JavaScript harder for newbies. And therefore, I think it's a bad idea. Mm -hmm. Transpilation by default, anyway. So you raise an interesting point when you're talking about Vue and how more and more people are starting to, to take Vue instead of React and things like that. Uh, what do you see as the life cycle of a project like React? You know, it's, it's kind of, I mean, I, I'm actually doing some research using your API right now because uh -huh. NPM has phenomenal data on this and looking at, you know, what, do, what does Vue's growth path look like relative to React's growth path? You know, it's several years uh, later in right. a lot of different ways. Uh, but you've looked at this over multiple frameworks. So what is the typical life cycle of a JavaScript framework? 
Um, most tools, most frameworks have a, li a usable lifetime of about four or five years. That's what it looks like. Um, they peak and then nothing falls off a cliff. They just very, very slowly decline. That's because nobody takes an existing project and switches it to a new framework. They just they maintain the old project and the framework it was written in, and they start new projects in the next thing. So everything, so so um, JavaScript frameworks in particular show this pattern of like a sudden peak and then a slow decline as something similar but better begins to absorb the new users. My favorite example of this is Backbone, which at one point was one percent of all registry downloads, and now. It's an afterthought. Most people don't think about Backbone, but Backbone still gets 250,000 downloads a day because people are still maintaining a lot of stuff in Backbone. Well, the WordPress REST API stuff is still using Backbone collections and models, I found. Even <laughs> in, in Gutenberg, which is coming out in React, their stuff for dealing with the data structures is Backbone. Right. Oh, wow. These things, these things are surprisingly long-lived. Although there are uh, a couple of frameworks which didn't die um, and instead, they sort of transcended. And my favorite example is jQuery. Um, you know, everybody's like, oh, jQuery is old news. Nobody uses jQuery anymore. That's not true. Everybody uses jQuery. jQuery's primary contribution to web technology was that DOM, the DOM API is a pain in the ass. Let's use CSS selectors to select DOM elements instead. And that is built into browsers now. Mm -hmm. The thing that they invented is part of the web now. It's absolutely bedrock. Everybody uses jQuery every day, and it's so, it just, it, you know, it, it merged into the walls, and you don't even know that it's there anymore. So I wonder, you kind of raised, is that going to happen with React, right? We have this drive towards web components, but as far as I've seen, web components are still imperative. One of the really interesting things that React introduced was this kind of state-driven way of interacting with your rendering engine, right? You're, I'm going to change state. Everything's going to kind of happen and trickle down from that. And all of the different JavaScript frameworks seem to have coalesced towards that model of having you, know, you manage state, state drives rendering. And it, it makes reasoning about your application a lot easier. I don't think Web Components is there yet. Mm. I, I kicked off a really interesting thread on Twitter um, a couple of months ago where I asked people who have actually built things with Web Components and like it tell me about your experience with web components. I was very clear. I was like, if you think web components are bad and you're not using them for some reason, I am not interested in hearing about why. Only people who actually use web components in production for something tell me what you liked about them. And it kicked off this really interesting sort of mini conference on Twitter where all a whole bunch of people who are using web components talked about their experiences. And what I came away with was even the people who are most enthusiastic about web components recognize that they are I don't know if fatally, but certainly currently flawed. Um, they liked how fast they were, because they're native, so they're very fast. They liked that they had a good uh, backwards compatibility story, because if the browser doesn't know what a tag means, it just ignores the tag and renders the stuff inside of it, which is a great fallback. Um, they didn't like. Uh, the way that you have to put stuff together. Like you said, it's very imperative. There's a lot of DOM manipulation in JavaScript. Nobody likes doing that. And my conclusion, I'm not, you know, I don't put it in my, in my future talk because like, it doesn't have a bunch of data to back it up. My own personal like, gut check prediction is that web components, um, they were a top-down effort by standards bodies to fix a problem without looking at the user space enough. 
and as such they will fail all like all of the other times we've tried to do that right <laughs> like XHTML2 and HTML3 and all the other times where the web standards bodies tried to get ahead of what usage was they guessed wrong and nobody used it and we abandoned those things so you know the massive usage of react the massive popularity of this of this pattern even outside of react of like stateful components and declarative structures um, we should, as a JavaScript community, be thinking about blessing that. Like, I would like JSX to be part of the JavaScript standard. And every time I say this, people who are in JavaScript are like, no, it's fundamentally incompatible with JavaScript, you know, like, with, with uh, JavaScript syntax, like, there's ambiguities, it's not going to work. I'm like, we have dealt with much, much worse fundamental incompatibilities in this platform. You are just whining. Get your stuff together and put JSX into JavaScript so that it goes a lot faster and we can all stop using, like, I would like to see React transcend or something along those lines of React components transcend and just become the way that we do modules. Yeah. And uh, JSS, like syntax, almost did make it into the language in ES4. Right. That was, uh, E4X was, was something that was proposed. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know if you ever used that. I actually no. had to use that in production. It was a nightmare. It, yeah. was, it was all of the joy of a DOM API with a whole bunch of angle brackets for no reason. <laughs> That seems like a lot of React right now, though, too. <laughs> I know. I, you know, it's funny, because I, I did React a fair amount for a while. And then this last year, I've been almost entirely doing Vue. And now when I go back and I look at G JSX, I cringe. Because while it is, it's interesting, because while React itself is fundamentally declarative, which has lots of incredible benefits to it, JSX is almost like an imperative embedded template, right? Like mm -hmm. you're creating the the contortions you have to go through to create some things that in JSX, because it is JavaScript and it is relatively imperative, make me cringe now that I'm back working with powerful templates. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I have, uh, have non-data-backed strong feelings about <laughs> templating languages. Yeah, um, fair. Basically, uh, I believe in the maxim that you know, all, all templating languages slowly accumulate features until they are PHP. <laughs> um, That's great. Like, that, like it, the, the temptation to just add, you know, add one more thing until it becomes Turing complete uh, is too strong for a yes. templating language. So the thing that I like about JSX is it's like we don't have a templating language. It's just JavaScript. Yeah. We were going to get there anyway, so we just skipped to the final page and said that it is JavaScript, and it's all the messiness of having to use an imperative programming language as your templating language because you were going to get there anyway. Fair enough. <laughs> I like that description. Too. You're just going to reinvent PHP. That's great. Yeah, I mean, I, the thing about having been a web developer for 22 years is that I spend an awful lot of time being old man yells at clouds now. I'm like, <laughs> I've seen us do this specific thing wrong three or four times. So yep. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm done. You know, yeah. Fool me three times, I'm done. Like, I'm not doing it again. I feel you for yeah. sure. <laughs> That's great. What uh, the JSX example right now highlights is something else that Babel sort of enables, but that I haven't seen folks do very much with, is it, it kind of lets us develop domain-specific languages that embed directly in JavaScript. Uh, and as you highlight, the web is sort of the dominant platform for JavaScript. It has been, and it looks like it will continue to be. JSX is kind of, you know, maybe it deserves to be blessed because it is a domain-specific language for rendering web content. Like, that's mm -hmm. what it is. And if that's what JavaScript is meant to tackle, why not pull it up? Why not transcend it, if I use your language? I wonder if there's other areas 
for that, though. I don't know. Maybe you have data on this. Like, are folks using... Like, I've always kind of wondered why there weren't more JSX-style things where we're going to embed a domain-specific language and then compile it into JavaScript. I mean, what is the difference in your mind between that and, like, TypeScript, right? TypeScript is a domain-specific language where they added a bunch of types, right? Types aren't... TypeScript describes itself as a language. TypeScript is not a language. TypeScript is a way of automatically writing tests in JavaScript, right? That's what types do, is they add tests to your JavaScript because of the way that you wrote it. Mm -hmm. It is a domain-specific language for testing that also is your code at the same time, <laughs> right? Um, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure in my own mind where the difference, where the boundary is between like a JavaScript alternative and a domain-specific language within JavaScript is. Fair point. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I think it's, it's kind of, we get a little bit of that as we evolve the language too, of creating syntactic sugar for patterns that recur over and over again to make it, you know, the way that we're writing code more expressive mm -hmm. for that. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that's been interesting in the last four or five years is as, as more and more people from other language communities um, have arrived in JavaScript land, um, usually against their will, um, they've sort of brought their favorite language features into JavaScript with them. Modern, uh, modern JavaScript certainly has uh, a lot more Ruby structures in it um, than mm -hmm. I would have ever predicted would get in there. Um, it makes the language more expressive, but I think that the, the downside of making a language more expressive is it also makes it harder to learn, mm -hmm. right? JavaScript in 1996, when I learned JavaScript, it had like three language features that were of any importance, right? Like if you got if and for and while down, you were pretty much done, right? That was it. That was all there was in JavaScript. And now there's like a zillion sub-variants of four, and I have to Google them every time. <laughs> um, and there's all of these syntactic sugars and like the triple dot syntax, which means one thing in one place and a completely different thing in the other. And we've got fat arrow functions, which have a completely different syntactic uh, binding for this than an ordinary function. Like all of these little things, which we were like, we added this because it was really convenient and it solved a problem. They're creating a barrier to newbies. They're like. I wrote a function that was one function, and then I changed the function format to another function, and suddenly my code is broken. Mm, yeah. That's real confusing for somebody just arriving in the language. Yeah. Um, so uh, expressiveness is good, but it's not without downsides. I don't think adding features to JavaScript forever is a good idea. Yeah, context in this has long been confusing, and each yeah. iteration just makes it more confusing because there are more ways to do it that each have their own subtle nuances. Yeah. Right, right. Eventually, you end up, you know, with the Perl obfuscation contest, where like, you know, is it line noise or is it Perl? <laughs> uh, yeah, I always. I heard a description of most Perl as it's a write-only language. You know, it's right. That's the problem with, with sufficient expressiveness is you can express anything and no one can read it anymore. This episode is brought to you by our friends over at .tech, a new top-level domain extension to consider when purchasing your next domain for your next big idea. .tech is a domain extension specifically intended for the tech community 
And more often than not, I don't know about you, but when I search for a URL to consider for a big idea, the .com, the .net, and many others are already taken or they're quite costly to register. So with one year starting at $4.99 and five years starting at $24.99, when you use our special code changelog, they're super affordable to grab, snag, and use. Head to get.tech to get started. Once again, get.tech to get started and use our code changelog or click through using the link in the show notes. And by our friends over at DigitalOcean. What we love most about DigitalOcean is one-click installs, deploys that are super easy. It doesn't really require you to know much about a server to get up and running. One-click installs for Node.js to an SSD cloud server in literally 55 seconds or even less. And the same experience you can have with a one-click install, you can have with pretty much anything you build out by taking a snapshot of your droplet. You can build out the best JavaScript app-friendly server and literally deploy it with no time at all. Manage your own stuff, run your own stuff, deploy to DigitalOcean and make life easy for you. Head to do.co slash changelog, pay less, deploy more, build better web apps with DigitalOcean and a free $100 credit. Once again, do.co slash changelog. There's a lot of other nuances to to the language now too with like async programming and especially async await and that's a really great syntax and I love using it uh, but it can be very easy to shoot yourself in the foot with that as well and not not realize that you need to like return a promise from from this yeah. or return a value in a specific way and that can just get swallowed up if it's not it, it's a very subtle bug that that can go unnoticed easily. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot better than using actual promises. And the observed reality is that it's a lot better than uh, callback hell was. Yes. So, uh, you know, I'll take subtle bugs over, you know, giant glaring bugs any day. Yeah. I honestly think using actual promises, once again, in the learning stage, is really helpful. Like, I would rather somebody do promises first and then go to async await than try to jump them straight to async await. This is one of the problems I have with web technology in general, especially when, you know, I, I talk at um, uh, boot camps all the time. And people are like, so how did you get started in web development? I was like, well, I got started at the same time as web development. <laughs> so I learned like I learned web technologies by having them accumulate around me. Yeah. Like I don't know how I would start learning web development if I had to start today. It's big and it's confusing. And mm -hmm. the only reason that I know it is because me and it have been around roughly the same amount of time. <laughs> <laughs> it's real hard to learn. So that's why that's one of the reasons I'm like, I don't know. Uh, in particular, I get angry when people say, oh, people should learn the fundamentals. I'm like, I have no idea what the fundamentals mean anymore. People used to complain at me because I was using PHP, and PHP parsed the HTTP headers for you. And they were like, you need to know the fundamentals of the web. You should be parsing your own HTTP headers, damn it. I'm like, no, I shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. That would be a terrible idea. <laughs> and now you get people who do React and people yelling at them going, you don't know JavaScript, you just know React. I'm like, so what? If you have two months to to learn the language at a boot camp, there's no way that you can start a vanilla JavaScript and wake all, all your way up uh, to the current incredibly complicated state of React. You have to just learn React and trust that people will pick up the other stuff that is, that is important over the rest of their career. And you also have to accept that there's some stuff that you think of as fundamental that's just never going to be important anymore, right? Like there's people who are like, oh, if you don't understand pointer math, you don't really understand programming. I'm like, no one has used a pointer. 
since 1995, my friend. <laughs> like, not unless they really wanted to. Yeah, I think getting to where you can build something that is cool, and that, that threshold has changed over time, is like, what is something cool? But the faster you can get somebody there, the more likely they are to actually stick mm -hmm. and keep doing development. Right. You know, that that's the joy of the web as a platform, right? It's like you start programming and the same day you've got a thing. You've got buttons you can click and stuff happens and like, you know, a line appears on the screen. And that's, you know, that doesn't happen with, with you know, any other programming language. Programming languages that are not the web, you're like, well, I worked all day and if you run this command, it spits out the phrase, hello world, <laughs> right? But on your first day as a web developer, you're like, I built a whole app. It's done. It's like sending emails to people, and it's like, you know, people are getting genuine value out of this, right? The web has so much more power, and it's so much more satisfying as a platform. Yeah. Um, which is one of the reasons that I, you know, I describe myself as a web supremacist. Like, I think it's great. I think it's awesome. <laughs> I think it's better than any of the other platforms. I'm here for all of the platforms, but this is mine. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is interesting that the fundamentals debate is an interesting one, because I, I similarly, I'll push back at folks who, say you've got to do that first. But I also do think it is important that you keep in mind that there may be fundamentals that it's worth learning about, right? Like, don't learn React and say, I'm done. Like, I'm, this is not an industry to be in if you don't want to keep learning because stuff is going to continue to change, but there's also like layers upon layers. Like, the number of abstractions you have at the web is mind boggling, right? right? Like, how many, how many places in human endeavors can you go down 10, 12, 15 levels of abstraction at each one its own field of study? Mm -hmm. Right. You know, this, you know the, the chip designers are like, everything is an level of abstraction to what's happening in the silicon. Yeah. And, you know, we ignore that completely until, oops, it turns out that, you know, we made a performance enhancement in 1998 and it turns out it made all computers after 1998 vulnerable to timing attacks and now we're screwed. Um, like that was that was a real case of the abstraction leak coming up to bite us. We were like, oh, well, it's in the silicon. There's no way we can patch this. <laughs> um, but you make a good point, which is like, if if all you know is the framework and frameworks have a lifetime of five years, then you risk the, the you know you risk becoming like a cold fusion developer, right? Like you only ever knew cold fusion, and there are still you know lucrative jobs to be had writing cold fusion, but only about fifty of them, and. <laughs> Like, that's fine, but you probably should have switched to something bigger at some point in your career. And that's a real risk for people who get too deep on one framework. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The one nice thing with the level of convergence we're seeing in front-end frameworks is if you get really good at React, picking up Vue is going to be pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. right. And vice versa. If you get really good at Vue, picking up React is going to be pretty straightforward. Yeah. yeah that's because there's really good ideas that are coming out of those and just being implemented in subtly different ways. But... Yeah, the, the convergence of the frameworks is definitely an indicator that this has gone beyond a, a framework choice to a thing that we should transcend. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Are there any other things on the horizon that you see of, okay, this is an area that maybe isn't as visible as the massive web frameworks of React and Vue and Angular and all of these, you know, those things, but that where there is some level of convergence or you know, accelerated activity going on? Um, I think... Uh, 2019, it might not be the year that you put GraphQL in production, but it's the year that you see somebody else put GraphQL into production and, and you end up having to learn it as a result. Um, it's, 
the growth of that of Apollo, which is the, the uh, most popular client library on NPM for GraphQL stuff, the growth of Apollo is staggering. It looks like early React. Um, and there's some real benefits there uh, to people who are you know, starting an API from scratch. I don't want to have to use an ORM. It's a nightmare. But I would like to be able to, complex, to you know, make complex queries of a data model without having to write a zillion REST endpoints. GraphQL has an answer for that. Um, and so I, I think everybody should sort of you know, dip the t their toe in that water this year. Well, and I've seen some interesting things. If you have an existing REST API, you can essentially wrap it with GraphQL and get started dipping your toes in without having to you know, get rid of your old API or anything mm -hmm. like that. Absolutely. So um, going back to the data a little bit from the survey, and, and how, has that transformed NPM, uh, the tool, in any way? Absolutely. I think um, one, of the, one of the sort of strongest points of, of data that you can get is competition. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, one of the, and that, that brings up Yarn. Right? Yeah. Yarn, was, um, Yarn was Facebook running into a problem before anybody else did. Facebook were writing bigger and more complicated web applications than anybody else. Uh, and as a result, they were one of the first, they weren't the first, but they were one of the first people to run into a problem um, with Semver. Uh, when you had 20 modules in a tree and you were using NPM's package JSON and you had you know, Semver compatible updates being pulled in automatically, that was fine. The chances of somebody having accidentally released a breaking change disguised as a security release were pretty low. Um, but the average web app these days has 1,000 modules in it. Some of them have 2,000 modules in it. And the chances of nobody in that tree having f***ed up even once are nil. <laughs> so Facebook was having every build be broken all the time. So they were like, no, this is, in, this is untenable. We are locking everything down to minor versions. And that was, what, that was, that was literally Yarn's major innovation. I don't want to see their only innovation, but it was the big thing that Yarn was doing was like, we will lock everything by default. And we'd been considering it for a long time. Um, and the adoption of Yarn showed us that, it was, that we were overdue on that. We took too long to do that. So in NPM 5, we put package lock in. Um, Package lock, it turns out, also has some uh, strong performance benefits, mm -hmm. um, simply because you don't have to be checking the server to see if there's anything newer, because you know that it's package lock. You just download the stuff that's in package lock. Using a lock file automatically made NPM twice as fast. And NPM 6 is 20 times faster than NPM 4 was. Wow. Um, because uh, this, um, I, it's a discourse group called uh, package.community, which is a domain, because this is 2018. <laughs> um, uh, the, the Yarn developers are in there, the NPM developers are in there, PNPM, um, all of the other alternative package managers are in there. Um, and everybody started sharing code with each other about like, how do we make these things faster? And they all got faster. Um, and the result is they're all now basically the same speed. Right. Um, because all of the low-hanging fruit is gone. We did everything that we could, and now all of the package managers are about the same speed. That's another really nice example of the cross-sharing of information Absolutely. that we're getting now. Um, I feel like, I mean, you've been in the industry even longer than I have. I've been around a while. But it just feels like we're getting a lot better at the fundamental underpinnings of how do we make this stuff better. I don't know. I think, it's, uh, I think tech's always had that in its, in its DNA in a way that no other industry has, right? Like when a, when a car company comes up with a new way of you know, making their car like, more fuel efficient or anything, they don't like you know, go to CarCon and have a huge... You know, keynote address about you too can make your cars faster. They're like, no, 
we're keeping this under our hats. No one, you know, we're going to patent it and no one gets to use it forever. But we do the opposite. Like, as soon as we figure out how to make something cool, we tell everybody exactly how to do it. We're like, and you too should build your web app better. Um, yeah. That's great. It's one of my favorite things about tech is that everybody just by default shares what they know. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's one of the things that keeps me motivated about tech. Like, I think, I, I think we're getting faster at it, um, but I think we've always been good at it. Awesome. Anything else you want to talk about? Uh, not off the top of my head, no. I think it's, uh, it's been a super fun conversation. We've hit all of the points I wanted to hit, I think. Yeah, yeah this has been great. Yeah, so we really appreciate thank you, you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a great conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of JS Party. Assuming you're loving this show, rate, review, or recommend it wherever you listen from. It helps us reach new, awesome people. If this is your first time listening to JS Party, you can find more episodes and our other compelling shows at changelog.com slash podcasts. The edit and mix was done by me, Tim Smith, and the music, as always, is brought to you by the one and only Breakmaster Cylinder. Thanks to our sponsors, Gage, Rollbar, DigitalOcean, and Algolia. Bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more about them at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com, and we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. Thanks for tuning in. See you next week. I'm Tim Smith, and my show Away From Keyboard explores the human side of creative work. You'll hear stories sometimes deeply personal about the triumphs and struggles of doing what you love. I ended up in hospital with burnout. I just kept ignoring the way that it was making me feel and just kept powering through it. And then eventually my body started to give me physical symptoms to say like, hey, you should stop and listen to me. New episodes premiere every other Wednesday. Find the show at changelog.com slash AFK or wherever you listen to podcasts.